What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Courtney Reagan filling in this evening for Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, we have Dan Nathan, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, and Karen Fireman. Tonight on Fast, we are all over the after-hours action and shares of Oracle. The stock under pressure after the company just reported results. The call is getting underway now. We will bring you all the big headlines from the quarter. Plus, what's the strategy? MicroStrategy looking to sell up to $1 billion worth of shares to possibly buy more Bitcoin. We'll speak with MicroStrategy CEO Michael Saylor. And later, we have a fast pitch on deck. A relief pitcher is taking the mound tonight to throw out her best idea, why she thinks this semi-stock is a total home run. But we start off with the most crowded trade in the market, long commodities. Bank of America saying the group took the top spot in its latest fund manager survey, ousting Bitcoin, which led the pack in May, and tech, the number one trade early in the year. But crowded trades have tended to coincide with market peaks. Just look at Bitcoin here over the last month. So, Guy, is this a sign that there's a commodity bubble that's about to pop if this is the number one trade? Courtney, it's great to see you in person again. It's been, obviously, since I want to say last March of last year. Yeah. Remarkable. So thanks for doing this. I don't think so, but i got to give kudos to Dan. You know, Dan, I would say a month or so ago, said, you know, things looking a little frothy here. Did you take some money off the table in the commodity world? I still think the commodity cycle is absolutely intact. We've seen moves like this before. If you just look at a chart like a U.S. steel over the last six to nine months, you've seen peaks and troughs along the way. It continues to make higher highs and higher lows. The moves to the downside unequivocally are scary, and it feels like it's over. I just don't think that it is. And in terms of crowded trades, there have been a lot of them. Another very crowded trade was the short bond trade, and that's obviously manifests itself with rates going lower. Dan, what do you think? Is a commodity a play you want to get into here? Follow the crowd? Yeah, it really depends which ones. If you think okay. about it, we've seen some of these guys come off a little bit. The sentiment was getting a little uh, too frothy, I think. Um, oil is the one, and I, and I know some of the other panelists have a lot to say on that. You know, that's the one that really is about this reopening trade, the global reopening trade, the global reflation trade. Crude oil had been consolidating a little bit in the high 60s and just broke out. It's seemingly making new 52-week highs every day for the last couple of weeks. I look at some of the large integrated stuff. I don't know if we have a chart of Exxon up here, but, you know, about six months ago, I think we were talking about whether or not Exxon was going to cut its dividend. And now it's obviously had this massive run. If you draw a line from its 2014 highs, and that was the prior peak in crude oil. You know what happened back in 2014? Uh, the Fed started coming off um, their quantitative easing. They started tapering. Mm-hmm. And then in 15, they started raising interest rates. And what happened? The dollar went higher. Crude went lower. So I'm just saying, be careful what you wish for. You you might get um, the Fed to start to take notice of this so-called inflation. If they do start to taper earlier than expected, they do start raising rates, crude oil is likely to come in. There's so many thoughts there. But Tim, I want to toss it over to you and let's talk about the price of crude oil and the energy stocks. Those have really been outperforming the rest of the market. What do you think about playing commodities? Well, um, and thank you for joining us, Courtney. And as the Bank of, Bank of America's uh, fund manager survey po- points out, you know, you have a case here where 
actually energy stocks are not overweight. And, and in fact, they're, if you look at their Z-score uh, to the long-term average, we're, we're really kind of at weighting maybe a little overweight versus the commodity overweight versus the bond massive underweight. So um, I, you know, I, I look at steel prices, which are still three times where they were last year. I look at copper prices, which have come back 15 percent, lumber prices, which have come back 45 percent in you know, 25 or 26 sessions. And, and you have a case where, depending on which part of the commodity complex you're in, uh, I think you still have major, major support for higher prices. The CRB index is not at all-time highs. And, and if you look at where we are relative to pre-COVID, we're up about 20%. But take a stock like Freeport Mac, which is down, I don't know, 15% off the highs and had a very tough day today. You know, in the current environment, Freeport's the lowest cost producer of copper. And at a 350 copper curve, it's currently around 440. Um, this company is minting money and, and actually in the last cycle at its peak when, you know, when I was trading emerging markets 15 years ago or 10 years ago, uh, Freeport was another one of those stocks. At its peak, it traded at seven times EV EBITDA. Um, on 22 numbers, it's about three and a half times. So it's not expensive. And I think we're getting a bit of a pause, but I think there's still more to go. Karen, when I think about the commodity prices, there are so many follow throughs, of course, and names like Home Depot and Lowe's have been talking about the impact of those lumber prices, whether it was very deflationary for some period of time or inflationary now, and then how that impacts ultimately what's going on with their results. As you look at commodity prices on the rise, are there names here that actually become more attractive to you if it's not a pure play in commodities itself? Well, it's a, it's a good question. You're saying how complicated, how interwoven everything is, right? So right. are commodities going up because the rest of the economy is going up, in which case there's a lot of things to like. Um, if, if, if commodities are going up because it just is this sort of uh, bubble of, of big increase in demand that will be transitory, as the Fed hopes, then that's not quite as interesting. For me, though, you know, looking at th- some things like lumber, and copper, which have been expensive for home builders. That, that area has gotten crushed. I think kudos to Dan, who was kind of negative on it. I think with rates here again and sentiment now lower and some of the inputs now lower, that's kind of a space that's interesting to me. We'll see. I think the Fed still has some more time, though, before they need to say anything, because I do think we're still in the middle of a, you know, a massive reopen and they need a little more time. Huh. So Karen's going to open the box a little bit more on the Fed. I know Dan kind of started the conversation. Guy, what do you think the market needs to hear tomorrow from the Fed? How much do we need to hear Jerome Powell say about inflation? And in what tone does he Yeah, It's interesting. I mean, they better just stay the course. I mean, don't deviate from what they've been saying. He's been very adamant about, you know, we're not thinking about thinking about raising rates until 2023, that whole rhetoric. I mean, if he goes down some rabbit hole, is the data changing and you know, where maybe the the pendulum is moved back the other way. That could be problematic for the market. And I think they're laser focused on what their words mean to the stock market, whether that's um, whether people acknowledge that or not. I think that's the truth. So I don't anticipate anything coming out of the Fed different tomorrow. And I think to Karen's point, the market's giving them the chance they need, the time they need to digest these numbers. So maybe you get a few more quarters of this. I don't think it's going to change their posture whatsoever. Hmm. Dan, Paul Tudor-Jones thinks this is Jerome Powell's most important meeting ever. Do yeah, you I think he's going to be disappointed. I mean, listen, I think, uh, I think PTJ you know, probably has a, a, a call into some of the folks who, who make some of the decisions down there in Washington.
Washington. Um, I'm not sure why they're raising expectations there. I'll just say this about the stock market. If you look at the S&P 500, it's been making seemingly new highs every day, little by little, you know, over the last couple of weeks here. So to Guy's point, if there was anything particularly hawkish that people are not expecting, you're going to see the stock market sell off over the next few weeks. And, and maybe that's what some of the big money wants. I mean, maybe they're looking at the S&P 500 up 13% um, you know, on the year and saying, listen, it's going to be a bit choppier. The data is going to get choppier in the back half of the year. We're going to be contending with decelerating metrics. Those are the things that got us really excited when they were accelerating at such a fast pace. Well, in the back half of the year, they're going to be decelerating. So maybe you're looking for an opportunity. I look at the S&P 500 broke out a few months ago at 4,000. That seems like a good round number here. Um, if you had it back there off of one comment by the Fed or something after the meeting, that makes sense as far as like starting to pick and playing for that global reflation in the back half of the year. Karen, you know, Dan just brought up the data and the market really hasn't been super reactive to some of this data, particularly the inflation data, whether the CPI or the PPI, which is coming in really hot. Do you think that that's an appropriate non-reaction to this hot economic data? That's an interesting point. I mean, the retail data was very not hot, right? And there was (laughs) some reaction there. Um, That's an area, you know, well, but I, I, I was sort of thinking this is all part of the same thing. That CPI number came in last week, hot, and they're like, doesn't matter. We're going to look past it. I think the same thing here for PPI, which is, you know, goods already manufactured and ready to be shipped out. Um, so I think they still they still have that cover. For me, I'm not changing the way I really do anything. I'm still long financials. I do believe that rates will go up, but I have to say, Some of the data on transitory, and I was skeptical, some of the data is compelling. And what do you think, Tim, about the data that we've seen this week, or even just today, if you focus on uh, retail sales and PPI? Are you surprised we had a muted reaction in the market ahead of this Fed meeting? A little. Um, but, but as Karen pointed out, we, I think the market had priced in a lot of this fear factor. And if anything, the bond market for the last three weeks or maybe even closer to six weeks uh, has, has gotten comfortable around whether it's transient and, and, you know, we'll pack that word away at some point, but we still have to use it. Um, I think if you looked at some of the other data out, to, first of all, the PPI number by any measure was extraordinary because you were at records since this data series began. So you have to, you know, take it for what it is. Extraordinary numbers certainly extraordinary times and the year-over-year comps are are what they are. They are going to get a lot easier. The home builder sentiment, which came in uh, and it's the lowest since almost, you know, last summer, um, is, is still, you know, not as hot as it was, but it's absolutely not cold. And, and I just think that the investors are evaluating where we are in the cycle. There are many folks that think we don't really see uh, any rate hikes till 2024, but at a minimum that we're shifting from early cycle to mid cycle and that there's still plenty to do here. So um, I just think it's it's about expectations. And I do think back to that fund manager survey, you can look at where we have gotten very crowded and, and you know, the contrarian trade often has been the way to respond to that. But I think the, the expectations back to everyone else's comments about tomorrow's Fed meeting uh, and and really what we're going to get in terms of uh, some feedback is don't hold your breath. Uh, I think that that statement, you're going to parse it word for word. There's going to be a couple slight changes, but they're not ready to roll. 
Before we move on and talk a little bit more about this, Dan, you've been pointing out some interesting moves in financials. What are you watching there? Yeah, no, I think we have a chart at J.P. Morgan, and obviously best of breed there. We know they kind of led the banks off of the bottom. Bank stocks had massively um, outperformed the market since the vaccination news in early November or so. And you see that right there. This is the first time that J.P. Morgan has broken um, that uptrend that's been in place since November. Obviously, it coincides a little bit with some of the commentary that Jamie Dimon had about different parts of his business trading. He didn't mention investment banking, but I suspect investment banking quarter over quarter is going to be down also. And then just the XLF, which is kind of hung in there a little bit. We know that Berkshire is a large component. JP Morgan's the second large component, but again, also contending with that uptrend. And I just think it's important. We've talked about a lot of these other commodities or some of these other groups that have kind of rolled over. Um, really, I think antennas start getting up on the street when you start breaking an uptrend from a very important psychological period like we had in November with the election and the vaccines. Wow, that seems like a lifetime ago. But yeah, that was psychologically important. As we count down to tomorrow's Fed decision, Wall Street's biggest bull has little doubt the Fed will address inflation. But the big question is, is how will it be received by the market? We know we're going to hang on every word. Let's bring in Jonathan Golub. He's chief U.S. equity strategist and head of quantitative research at Credit Suisse. His S&P year in target is 4,600. That's 600 points above Dan's nice 4,000 number. Jonathan, thank you very much for joining us here today. So what do you think the market is expecting from the Federal Reserve tomorrow and the reaction that we should be poised for going into uh, what we will hear from Mr. Powell. Well, the one thing which which it seems like we're all in agreement on is that the Fed is doing absolutely nothing to signal that they're they're raising rates anytime soon. If the fact that they may give a nod to say that, yes, inflation is running a little hot. Listen, we're all looking at the same terminals and we're seeing that the uh, you know, that the CPI print is hot, the PPI print is hot. We see where oil prices are high. So some kind of a an indication that they're at least seeing the same things we are, I don't think is really going to rock the market. But I agree with some of the comments that you folks have made. They're not going to do anything, and they're going to really parse their words to make sure that they don't spook the market. The market's looking for one thing, if, if, they're, if they're looking for a negative, is is the Fed going to start a timeline and say, all right, we're beginning the process of tightening? And I think the answer is no. The market would be surprised if it's yes. Jonathan, you, you, I mean, I find it interesting that people like James Gorman and then you have Jamie Dimon making comments. James Gorman completely going against the, the folks at Morgan Stanley saying, you know what, I know what our bank thinks, but I think we're going to see a taper at the end of this year interest rate hike beginning of next year. Do you find it interesting that a lot of voices over the last month, month and a half, have sort of taken this posture somewhat counter to what we're hearing out of the Federal Reserve? Well, first of all, there's, there, there are folks who, who follow the Fed for, for a living, and I'm not sure people, who, you know, some of the, the guys you're mentioning are, 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 are in that, that crew. But, you know, we have zero interest rates on an economy that is absolutely on fire. This is the this will be the strongest GDP quarter measured year over year um, since like the Marshall Plan, um, way before any of us were ever born. And, uh, you know, earnings you know, for the S&P are going to be up something like 75 or maybe 80 percent this quarter versus a year ago level. So when you see interest rates at zero, you can see why someone would say, come on, do these really make sense? They're going to have to start taking some action. But the Fed has learned in the past you know, leave it alone. Um, right now, you know, the Fed has been dying for the last decade to get inflation hotter. They're not going to kill this thing without uh, without letting inflation run hot for longer than people think. 
Jonathan, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. Let me just ask you if, let's say he either, Jay Powell either slips or actually we're, we're wrong and he actually wants to address inflation in a way that lets us think it is hotter than they're feeling comfortable. Right. Um, I Go ahead, John. I, I think Karen, Karen froze there, but I think you get the general point of her question. If Jerome Powell uh, does what we don't expect him to do and indicates that inflation is running hotter than he would like it, what do you think the reaction yes, is? You know, listen, listen whether the Fed moves in, and there's all this discussion about dot plots and things like that, that whether the Fed moves sometime in 23 or sometime in 24, we're a couple of years away from them actually raising interest rates above zero. And, and, and if they taper three months early or four months later, here's what you have. You have an economy that's on fire. You have corporate profits that are on fire. You have a Fed that is extremely accommodative, and they're going to be accommodative for a number of years. So could you have a, a mess up where, they, where the market pulls back by 2% or 3% on, on something like that? Maybe. The market is up 43% in the last 12 months. So let's just say they, they come across a little more hawkish than they intended, and the market was only up 40% in the last year. I just don't see any reason why that's going to make me rethink, um, re- rethink anything. If they go and they really convince the market that they're, taking a, that they're going to attack inflation, you know, they fought so hard to try to get inflation up that I just I can't imagine that they're going to act this this soon. So they could make a mistake and the market could take a little bit of a, of a dip. I would be buying it all day long. Jonathan Gallo from Credit Suisse, thank you very much for joining us here today. Let's trade this out. Tim, I want to go to you. Anything that Jonathan said here spark any ideas for you going into tomorrow for trading, even if we're talking about bigger picture trades here before we hear from Powell? Or you just got to sit on your hands and see exactly what he says? Well, first of all, the big question is, is the Fed for 34 basis points of inflation uh, chasing, creating an asset bubble? That's what this comes down to. But listening to Jonathan, and I think this is consistent with what we've all said, or at least a few of us, uh, materials and financials in a world that's going to be booming as this economy is, especially financials. And I know the move that the banks have had since November uh, relative to S&P. And, and maybe a couple of the charts like JPM look a little bit weaker. Um, but you know, ultimately, you have a dynamic here where profits and the, the ability across multiple parts of their business, and, and at least right now, the credit concerns that were here a year ago, uh, they're, look, there's still, uh, you know, re- still reserves that can come off that are also just a tailwind to the earnings profile of the bank. So I, I got to stay. I, I love financials here, especially with Jonathan uh, pointing out just how strong this economy is and how they are a measure of Main Street. Hmm. We'll keep our eye on financials and see what happens there with that group. But coming up, we're going to bet big on Bitcoin. Micro strategy looking to sell up to a billion dollars worth of stock and they could use the money to buy even more Bitcoin. So what's the strategy for micro strategy? The company CEO joins us ahead. But first, we're all over this after hours action in shares of Oracle. The stock just took a big leg lower with that conference call underway. It is now at after hours lows, down more than 4%. We'll break down that trade when Fast Money returns. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. 
For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert for you. Shares of Oracle on the move after reporting earnings. Let's get to Kate Rooney for the breakdown. Hi, Kate. Hey there, Courtney. Oracle reporting better than expected revenue and earnings in the fiscal fourth quarter. Also highlighting faster revenue growth as the pandemic recedes here in the U.S. Shares, though, under pressure here after hours. They've been trading down about almost 5% now. The call just kicking off CEO Safrakatz giving some details on guidance, she says, Revenue for this upcoming year should grow faster than fiscal 2020. She expects mid-single-digit growth. One headline here, she does say Oracle is going to, quote, invest back into the business at a greater rate. She called cloud. There's been a huge focus from analysts on that side of the business. Fundamentally more profitable uh, on that side of the business than on-premise. Oracle also just saying they expect to double cloud capex spending to nearly $4 billion. Oracle saw a roughly 8% revenue increase in the latest quarter. The software giant also beating by about $0.23 cents on adjusted EPS. That was up 29% year-over-year, citing growth in applications and that cloud business. Oracle's top segment by revenue is cloud services and license support. That came in at about $7.4 billion for the quarter. It was also up 8%. Oracle has been one of the biggest tech stock winners, notwithstanding that after hours weakness today, it had been up about 25 percent since January. So the bar was high for this one, Courtney. Back to you. Yeah, it sounds like it. Thank you very much, Kate. So, Guy, what's going on here? Stock is down, but that report sounded really good. It's just selling the news. No earnings growth. I mean, listen, I think they've they've been able to flip their business really successfully. I mean, look at these cloud revenues. They're good. The growth is there. But then you look at EPS growth, maybe 10, 11 percent. EPS growth, and it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to sort of come up with a 2021 time multiple they're trading at. I think Oracle has turned the corner, and I think you buy the weakness. But kudos to Dan and Mike Coe, who's come on in the last couple of weeks and talked about the put buying that they've been seeing in the name. All right, you want to make a quick comment on yeah, that? Yeah, just then? real quickly. I mean, they guided down Q, uh, fiscal Q1 uh, EPS down about five percent, stock down about four or five percent. Makes a little sense, and especially coming off of that all-time high, I think it makes sense given that capex guidance in the cloud. Why not set expectations a little lower so they can be going forward? 
A lot of conservative guidance going on. We do have a market flash on Roblox. Christina Partsinevelis has the details. Hi, Christina. Hi, and we're seeing shares of Roblox sinking right now in extended trading, and that's after the video game platform released some of its key performance metrics for the month of May. So investors are owning in on the month-to-month decline in daily active users from April, down 300,000 to 43 million. And on a year-over-year basis, the company sees a 2 to 3% decline in average bookings per daily active user. And while those daily active users have slipped from this April, the company did see hours engaged on the platform rise 9% from May 2020. And here I thought the kids would be playing outside. And the company is also estimating 123 to 126% increase in May revenue year over year. So, Courtney, now you're seeing the stock down well over 7%, so definitely taking a hit in after-hours trading. Back to you. Thank you, Christina. Tim, does this uh, make sense to you based on what Christina said, down 7%? Well, look, it's a high multiple stock. It's one of these stocks that, that, that arguably at different periods, even in the last three months, these stocks have, have just failed under market conditions that have been looking for, for more growth. And, and 9% engagement in, in, the, in the sweet spot. Uh, I think is what people are concerned about. This is a name uh, secularly in terms of the business that they're involved in and the engagement and, and the demographic and the metaverse and you name it. I mean, I, I actually really like Roblox. A 56% move into that pullback, which is uh, you know now getting to a place back to levels where I think the stock is starting to look interesting again. You, you don't need to buy this thing tomorrow. The valuation uh, is still going to be very rich, but I think thematically uh, it's a name I like a lot. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here is what is coming up next. A budding crypto romance. MicroStrategy planning to sell up to $1 billion in stock to buy more Bitcoin. CEO Michael Saylor joins us next to detail the move. Plus, DraftKings stealing the heat. A new short sellers report sending the stock lower. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. We're just hours away from the kickoff of the CNBC Evolve Global Summit. Features speakers include Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger, Pfizer's Albert Borla, and Carnival's Arnold Donald. It's not too late to register for tomorrow's event. You want to head to cnbcevents.com slash evolve. That's going to be a really good one. Let's check out Bitcoin surging higher over the past week, up more than 20% following a few rough months. And guess who's come along for the ride? Business software firm MicroStrategy. The stock closely tracking Bitcoin's performance as MicroStrategy continues to add the crypto to its balance sheet. And the company just filed to sell up to $1 billion in stock to possibly fund even more Bitcoin purchases. So let's bring in MicroStrategy CEO Michael Saylor. Michael, thanks so much for joining us here tonight on Fast Money. You're going to have to do some explaining to us. You're a business software firm. Why do you keep buying Bitcoin? Three purchases large purchases, at least in less than a year? Well, first, the world's waking up to the fact that Bitcoin is digital property on an open monetary network. 
And that's pretty profound because it's going to spread to billions of people around the planet. It's, it's, it's digital gold on a big tech network. We have two strategies, and one of our strategies is to acquire and to hold Bitcoin. So uh, MicroStrategy is the first company to do a Dutch auction or a share repurchase to buy Bitcoin. We're the first company to do a convertible debt offering to buy Bitcoin. Last week, we became the first company to do a senior secured debt offering to buy Bitcoin. And we put in place this billion dollar at the market shelf registration so that we'd have a standing program to be able to go back to the capital markets to issue equity in the future should the circumstances present themselves. And we would use that either to buy Bitcoin or to retire debt or for general corporate purposes. It, uh, we have a standing share repurchase program so we can go back and buy our own shares. We've got $200 million or more in that program. And we're pairing this billion dollar at the market program with that so that the company has all of its options open in the future. It seems like you're really very involved in Bitcoin. Is this distracting from what MicroStrategy's main business is? Is this what investors really want you to be doing? No, I think it's actually an ideal situation because our stock was trading about $120 a share with $60 a share in cash. And our investors told us the cash was trash. It was a liability on our balance sheet. And if we had given it all back, we would be trading at $60 a share. Instead, uh, we, we rotated our shareholder base and transformed ourselves into a company that's able to sell enterprise software and to acquire and hold Bitcoin. And we've done it successfully with leverage. That has increased the power of the brand by a factor of 100. We just had our best software quarter in history or in the last 10 years, last quarter. Um, the, the core business is up 10%. The Bitcoin business is driving shareholder returns. I think the employees are happy. The shareholders are happy. Mike, with Karen, thanks for being on our show. Um, let me ask you about when you did the offering for debt to potentially buy Bitcoin, how do you think about that versus issuing equity? I think, I don't know, you're paying six and change percent. Does when our stock was 120, we bought... Yeah, when our stock was 120, we bought back the shares at 140 to buy uh, Bitcoin. That was accretive. And then we did a convert offering at 398, and that was accretive because our stock was 300. When our stock hit 1,000, we did a convert offering at $1,432 a share because that was accretive to all the other classes of security holders. And when our stock came back in, we saw the opportunity to do this secured debt financing we did that because we could get the capital at six and eight percent interest, and that's not dilutive to the equity holders and it's not dilutive to the convert holders. So it was another major accretive uh, financing that we could do for the benefit of all of our security holders. Michael, one thing I've learned over the last nine months is you're extraordinarily thoughtful in terms of how you look at your business and the things that you're implementing. And we spent the last half hour prior to you getting here talking about inflation. Kyle Bass today talked about real inflation being 12 percent. You've had a lot of voices on the inflation front. Where does how do you view inflation? How does the institutional views of Bitcoin look through that lens, the lens of inflation? I think over the past 12 months, we've all been waiting for uh, inflation. I think we're seeing it right now. I think investors are saying that Bitcoin's up 330% and gold's up 7% in that period. So Bitcoin is outperforming gold as an inflation hedge by a factor of 50. So you're seeing Paul Tudor Jones and the other early Bitcoin believers thinking, maybe it's time for me to double or triple my allocation. 
between you and me, I'm surprised they're not increasing their allocation by a factor of 10 because Bitcoin's 50 times better. Hey, Michael, um, I just Googled the term Bitcoin maximalist and a picture of you came up here. Um, so you've been buying Bitcoin hand over fist. You're raising capital. You just went to. What about Ethereum? What about this move towards proof of stake that we should see this summer? I mean, are you thinking about diversification? Is there room in the micro strategies, Bitcoin strategy for Ethereum and proof of stake? Yeah, let's talk about the crypto universe. Uh, you've got digital property and Bitcoin is is the highest, most dominant digital property network. Think of it as like granite blocks in Manhattan and cyber Manhattan. Uh, then you've got digital currency. That's like tether and stable coins. They want to be money markets in cyberspace. And uh, and so they'll be like the CBDC dollars. And uh, then you've got digital applications like Ethereum. Ethereum wants to dematerialize the JP Morgan building and the banking establishment and all of the exchanges. There's a place for all of these things uh, properly understood. And you're going to want to build your buildings on a solid footing of granite. So Bitcoin is meant to last forever, high integrity, very durable. Ethereum is, uh, is trying to dematerialize exchanges and the finance establishment. I think that as the market starts to understand these things, there's a place for everybody. Michael, we want, I want to end by asking you, I mean, you've given us a really good playbook for why it makes sense to buy Bitcoin. So if I'm an investor and I've got money to put to work, why would I buy a share of MicroStrategy? Why wouldn't I just buy Bitcoin? Well, MicroStrategy's got the ability to sweep our software cash flows into Bitcoin. So we're an operating company that reinvests in Bitcoin. We also have the ability to raise debt financing. So we were able to borrow a billion dollars at 0% interest and buy Bitcoin. And so your ETF won't be able to borrow billions of dollars at low interest rates and leverage up. And, and so to the extent that the investors feel the management team knows how to manage uh, leverage and manage the core business, then we should get a premium against an ETF. And to the extent that they don't, we'll get a discount. So we have to stay on our toes. Michael Saylor, thank you for joining us, CEO of MicroStrategy. All right, let's go around the horn on this one if we can and, and trade it. Karen, I want to get you back in here. And you asked uh, Michael a good question. Did he answer anything that makes you a little bit more clear on his strategy? Would you be a buyer of MicroStrategy? Or like I asked right at the end, just go right into Bitcoin. Right. That's, that's sort of what I'm wondering. I mean, he's proven to be a very, very nimble, great Bitcoin trader. Right. Which I mean, and but he's a long term believer for sure. So I, I still come back to your question, though, um, because you, you don't have this pure play. You could you don't need to buy a Bitcoin ETF. One could just buy Bitcoin and continue to buy Bitcoin if one wanted to. But I mean, good for him for I mean, he's he's ma he's managed the markets masterfully. I would just uh, for me, I'd rather have Bitcoin. Tim, I'm going to give you the last about. the last word on this one. What do you make of what Mr. Saylor had to say? Well, well good for uh, look. Uh, it sounds like he wants to be a Bitcoin ETF. Um, what's interesting is if you follow the stock, the correlation. Uh, I think as Bitcoin pulled back 50, his stock pulled back 51, uh, and I think the rally off the bottom is something like 35. I think he's rallied 34 through yesterday. Last chart I looked at. Um, I do think it's impressive if you think about like he hasn't just raised this money from the retail community or people that are just been at least most associated with Bitcoin. We also know that there's the institutional community. In fact, that's kind of his point, that, that Bitcoin is an institutional grade safe haven. And, and, and so when you're talking about secure debt, 
um, you're talking about a different type of an investor, and, and it's pretty clear um, that they're lining up for this. So um, that's, that's really the, the capital market story to me is as fascinating as any of it because it's really telling you where there's plenty of interest out there for the asset class. There is a lot of fascinating threads in that story, Tim. Thanks. Well, coming up, the king gets dethroned. DraftKings sinking today as a short seller takes aim. We'll break down the headline that sent this stock into the red. But first, we have a fast pitch coming your way. A guest trader is taking the mound to throw out her next best idea. Find out if you think it's a home run idea. You're going to have to stick around the name when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Semiconductor stocks are on the rebound, and our next guest says there's one name in the group that's poised to be the leader of the pack. So let's get right to Shana Sizzle, CIO of Spotlight Asset Group. She's taking them out with a fast pitch. Welcome to the show, Shana. You are pitching Marvell Technology. So tell us, why do you like that name and why do you like it here? Well, for the past three years, Marvell has, through strategic acquisitions and smart business planning, radically shifted their business model away from their legacy business, focusing more on end-to-end technology solutions for cloud data centers and 5G infrastructure. The stock has underperformed its overall semiconductor peers uh, over the last year. They had an earnings miss in the fourth quarter uh, that caused the stock to continue to underperform. However, their latest earnings report, which was last quarter, included some positive signs from a recent acquisition they did with Infi. And what they saw was revenue growth in every key business segment. They had their fifth consecutive quarter of uh, revenue growth with 5G infrastructure. And they're predicting up to 70% year-over-year improvement in their network revenue as a result of the acquisition, which was not included in previous guidance. So there's a number of things that are attractive about the stock, not the least of which is it's trading at a discount to peers, something like NVIDIA, uh, but it has a better balance sheet, less leverage, and much higher earnings growth, approximately 30% five-year earnings growth as to uh, up, um, outlook right now. So all of those things, I think, make the stock really attractive at these levels. Guy, you have any questions? Yeah, I do. My quick question, I'm going to like this just so you know ahead of time, but my question is, do you think, I mean, they've been acquisitive. Is this a name that could be acquired in in the environment that we find ourselves in? I know you don't buy stocks for that reason, but a lot of things are in play right now. I don't think so. They have been a major acquirer, and they just completed a a rather large acquisition, a $10 billion acquisition that closed in April. I think what they've shown is that they're willing to be an acquirer to be able to provide that end-to-end solution in that cloud space to be able to compete with Broadcom. They also just re-domiciled the company from Bermuda to Delaware, which now makes them uh, able to compete for federal U.S. agency contracts, which they were not able to do before. So that was an advantage to Broadcom, which Broadcom no longer has. So it's really just them and Broadcom in this cloud data center space, and they are a market share gainer, and Broadcom really is a market share loser at this point because they are the dominant player. Well, Shannon knows this name well. No more time for questions. It is, though, time to vote. So are you buying Shana's fast pitch on Marvell Technology? Dan, you get to start. Yeah, I'm going to say yes, but I'm going to kind of put a little caveat here. Uh-huh. I've been buying that on a pullback. This stock is up. Come on, guy. It's up 30% yes, in a straight is. line over a couple months here. She makes a great fundamental case. She makes a great comparative valuation case. And there's, like, a, a secular shift going on. What did, what did Oracle just say? They're going to be doubling their capex for uh, cloud spending. So... She's right. 
but Dan, I'll pull back. Dan's talking directly to Guy. So, Guy, you're up next. I'll talk oh, to Dan. The IPHI <laughs> deal is a creative. It's a great mm-hmm. point. And I think $65 is the level it's going. I think Steve or Jeffries just put that price target. And I'll tell you, in this environment, to buy that growth, the $60 billion deal for somebody to come in, I don't put that out of the realm of possibility, Dan Nathan. I like it. Mm-hmm. Tim, do you have a board? Do you have a piece of paper? Or what do you say? Of course I do. I, I, all the time. I'm always ready on this. Guy's going to like this. So, so the Mets had a player at one point named Marvell Wynn. Yes. Um, and while he was a terrible ball player, this is absolutely a Marvell win for Shauna. So I, I love the story. I think the network upgrade, uh, the cycle for upgrades, uh, Facebook and Microsoft are about to kick off massive upgrades. I think there's a lot here for them in the upgrade cycle and the bookings backlog. Okay, Karen, what do you say? Well, it was a great pitch, Shauna. However, I got to pass. This is the semiconductor index in the clouds. So it's really a question of I think the space is just has room to pull back, but a really excellent pitch. And I learned some things. So thank you. I like the illustration as well, Karen. Well, thank you, Shana. The traders have voted. Now it's your turn, America. Are you buying Shana's pitch on Marvell Technology? Vote in our Twitter poll at CNBC Fast Money. We'll have the results later in the show. Coming up, DraftKings down big today as a short seller accuses the online sports betting company of having ties to the black market. We're digging into those explosive allegations ahead. Stick with us. Fast is back right after this. Miss a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out sports betting stock DraftKings tumbling today as a short seller takes aim. Let's get over to Contessa Brewer with the details. Hi, Contessa. Hi, Courtney. Hindenburg's report drops attention-getting accusations at DraftKings, claiming it's linked to black market mafia and illegal dealings around the world through its back-end tech provider, SB Tech. In response, DraftKings pointed out Hindenburg Research is shorting the stock, quote, with an incentive to drive down the share price. We conducted a thorough review of their business practices, and we are comfortable with the findings. DraftKings went public in a three-way merger with SB Tech and its SPAC vehicle last year, but it has been working to overhaul and integrate its technology, still using Cambi until that transition to a proprietary tech stack is complete. So it's really the tech and not the revenue here that's important. Sharp Alpha Advisors is a VC firm focused on sports betting. Managing partner Lloyd Danzig remains bullish on DraftKings. He told me today no one in gaming is surprised by these foreign companies' ties to gray markets or black markets in the past, but that they go through an overhaul process to pass the rigorous oversight by U.S. regulators. He says, quote, it's difficult to believe that DraftKings is expending significant resources to support and conceal revenue streams that are dwarfed by the company's expected future earnings. Credit Suisse analyst Benjamin Shaken said in a note published today, if SB Tech revenues were to go away entirely, we think there would be minimal impact on the DraftKings stock. He says it's not ideal, but look, we would use today's weakness in the stock as an opportunity ahead of potential Canada legalization as well as New York. And of course, Courtney, both of those are expected to become big catalysts for DraftKings. 
Very interesting story and brave to be a short seller in this market. I would think you would draw the attention of the Wall Street bets crowd by being so out there about it. But Contessa, thank you very much. Let's trade it. Tim, I, I want to go to you. There's a pullback, of course, on this news down 4%. I've been thinking about Heisenberg and Walter White and Breaking Bad all day because it's all like tied up there in my mind with the black market. But anyway, besides that point, do you want to get into this stock at these levels? Does this provide you an opportunity or give you pause? Well, I'm into it. And, and uh, so using Karen's uh, statement of if I went home long, I might as well just be buying it here. And look, um, Hindenburg's work is often very, very detailed. Um, the, you know, the, the fact that this is an allegation about the potential practices of a company that they made an acquisition on is significant. But it would be more significant to me if this was something that was going on now and that they were still operating in, in gray markets, which in betting there's still plenty, plenty of. Uh, I think corporate governance in new markets, you know, this is someone that's been investing in, in, you know, in the cannabis space and has seen a lot of companies come out also of black and gray markets. Um, it's more about what they're doing now. I think the opportunity for DraftKings is extraordinary. And, and, you know, I don't buy DraftKings response that they're a short seller, so they have an axe to grind because it's just it's not. You know, that, that doesn't answer the questions. I think they have responded in terms of the due diligence process that they went through. Uh, again, look, Hindenburg's track record is pretty good, um, although, uh, you know, they, they often, I think, leap first. And, and I think this is a case where DraftKings has you know, a foundation from which to draw upon. But I don't have that information. Uh, and it would certainly concern me if that was accurate. Yeah, absolutely. It is an interesting story. I'm sure we'll follow it closely and watch those shares to see what happens. Coming up, we're going to open the door on Lennar. Traders are gearing up for the Home Builders earnings report. That's tomorrow, but we've got the trade for you next. Plus, you don't want to forget to vote in our Twitter poll. Do you think Marvell Technology is a buy? Head to at CNBC Fast Money to vote. But first, as we head out, a message from the CEO of GT's Living Foods as we celebrate Pride Month. The challenges I have faced as being a member of the LGBTQ community is breaking stereotypes that still exist. Since being an openly gay executive is still relatively new in the business world, there are many misconceptions about our skills and our strengths. That's why it's very important to defy labels and disprove antiquated perceptions. Welcome back to Fast. Lenar on deck with earnings tomorrow after the bell. Let's get to Mike Go with the setup. Uh, there, yeah. So Lenar, the options market is implying a move of about 5% or so higher or lower after they report earnings. And while calls did slightly outpace puts on above average volume today, the two most active options were actually puts. The June 91 puts being the most active, trading for about a dollar and a half. It would seem that some options traders do not believe that this earnings will be as good as the last two. Thank you very much, Mike. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show Friday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. It's your last chance to vote in our Twitter poll. Is Marvell Technology a buy? Head to at CNBC Fast Money to weigh in. The results are up next. Big win for Shana Sizzle. Her pitch on Marvell, a home run. It is now time for final trades. Tim. Thanks, Courtney. Amazon. Karen. Thanks for being here, Court. Whirlpool. You got it, Dan. Guy. Come on, Dan. A little excited. Chet Blue, Courtney. Not for me. <laughs> I'm just giving Dan. Blackstone, Courtney. Okay, very good. Blackstone, Jet Blue, Mad Money is about to start right now. Thank you very much for joining us on Fast Money tonight.
People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.